0: Amen. You can have a seat. Hey, welcome to Calvary Chapel this morning, everyone. And if you're new with us, we're glad that you've come and uh, enjoying this part of the body of Christ and fellowship with us today. In Acts chapter 2, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That was the pattern of the apostolic church. And We aim to make it our pattern here as well in Calvary Chapel. We are devoted to the scriptures and to the explanation of the scriptures. We are devoted to fellowship with one another. We want there to be a life and a body uh, sense and a family sense among us. And the breaking of bread in the Lord's table as well as in common meals together and in prayers. We love to pray uh, when God gives us opportunity. So uh, we just hope you'll be part of all that. And uh, that's what we're aiming at. So we're going to be reading this morning out of Psalm 29. The words will be up on the screen for those of you that don't have the New King James translation. We're going to be reading through Psalm 29. I'll read the first and the odd-numbered verses, and Pastor Bill will read the second and the even-numbered verses, and you follow along with him out loud as we read. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. And the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And we thank you for your many precious promises. It's by these promises that we are able to be made partakers of your divine nature and able to escape the corruption that is in this world through human desire. And we love you, Lord, for that. We thank you for your word. And we pray this morning for every gathering of believers throughout Santa Cruz County where the word of God is believed in and where it is viewed as being your inspired and authoritative word. We pray, Lord, for each gathering, each group, that the Lord Jesus would be held up high and that you would bless, Lord, the preaching and the ministry of the scriptures this morning. And cause your word, we pray, to have good success as it reaches into the lives of people. We pray that your kingdom would come this morning, Lord, and that your will would be done here on earth as it's being done in heaven. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And this morning we come to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a doctrine that Christians believe in because of the promise of Jesus himself. He said, I will come again. And I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. Now there's a huge difference between Jesus coming for his church. That's the rapture. That moment can happen at any time where Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised, and then we who are alive and uh, living on the earth at that time will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture of the church, Jesus coming for his church, always then being with Jesus. If he's in heaven, we're with Jesus. If he comes back to the earth, we're with Jesus. From that point on, every single place Jesus is, is where his believers are as well. That's the rapture. He's coming for his church. And that could happen at any time. But then there is the return of Christ to the earth physically, when Jesus comes with his church to the earth to set up his kingdom. That hasn't happened yet, obviously, but it's going to happen, and it's going to be a future event, which could be as little as seven years away if the rapture of the church were to happen today. So pray for that. Last prayer of the Bible, Maranatha. That would be cool. Amen? Amen. So the second coming of Christ, it's huge. It's based upon the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Because he rose, we know that he's coming back. It's that simple. Now, there's a huge difference between the first and second coming of Christ. In his first coming, he became a man. He became humble. He became obedient to death. He was the servant to give his life as a ransom for many. When he comes back the second time, it's not as the humble servant. It's as the victorious, conquering, and ruling king. And there's the difference between the two reigns. So in the time between his first and second coming, those who choose to align themselves with him and believe in him and trust in him, they get to join in with him in his coming when he rules and reigns on the earth. So, if you are happy about his first coming and you believe in all that he represents in his first coming, then you'll be very glad about his second coming because you'll be ruling and reigning with him, returning to the earth uh, with him when he comes back. So, that leads us into our text because that's what the subject of the message is this morning. And the message title is The Second Coming of Jesus Christ. I didn't know what else I could call it, because that's what it's about. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Very, very descriptive words concerning our Lord Jesus Christ as he comes the second time riding on this white horse. White horse. Contrast that with his first coming. Remember his first coming, he didn't come on the back of a white horse, the animal of conquest, the animal of victory. Kings would come into an area that they had conquered with their armies, riding on a white horse to proclaim their victory and their conquest, to make an announcement to everyone there, the glorious king, the conquering king has come. Jesus, the first time, did not come on a white horse. But instead... Matthew tells us that he came on the back of a colt, the foal of a donkey. And a very humble coming in his first coming. Riding on the back of a lowly colt, the foal of a donkey. And this was consistent with his first coming. Where Jesus describes himself as being meek and lowly in heart. That's who he is in his first coming. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's coming on a white horse when heaven is opened, and he who sat on him, that would be the Lord Jesus, was called faithful and true. And you'll recognize those descriptions of the Lord Jesus. He's faithful in so many ways. Hebrews 3 tells us that he's faithful as a son to his own heavenly Father. Everything his Father told him to do, he did. Everything his Father commissioned him in, he fulfilled it. He's faithful over his own house, Hebrews 3.6. We're part of that household by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's the faithful witness, Revelation 3.14, as is described to the church of the Laodiceans. And it tells us also that in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Now you remember back in the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath, one of the well-known and best-loved stories in the Old Testament. David shows up as a young man, the eighth son of Jesse. He shows up on the battlefront. All of the Israeli armies were on one side of this great valley, and the Philistine armies were on the other side of this great valley. And the arrangement was that whoever is able to defeat Goliath, if that person can defeat Goliath from Israel then that would mean that Israel was victorious in the whole war. So the whole war hinged on whether or not Israel's soldier could defeat Goliath. And so David shows up on the battlefront to deliver some cheeses and some bread for his brothers and for his family. And his brother Eliab criticizes him for being there. What are you doing? You're just coming here to make mischief, to spy out stuff, you little runt. And just, you know, kind of getting on his case. And David said in response to his brother, he said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? And the answer, of course, was yes, indeed there was a cause. The armies of the Philistines and their champion, Goliath, were blaspheming God and terrifying the nation of Israel and bullying the nation of Israel And it was just a horrible, horrible scene from that perspective. And that's what Goliath had been doing. So yes, there was a cause. There was a reason for David to be there. There was a reason for the war to be fought. There was a just cause. This blasphemy had to be ended. And this speaking out against God and the threat against his people had to end. So let's ask the same question of Jesus' second coming. Is there not a cause? And the answer, of course, is yes, there is a cause. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Is there a cause? Yes, there's a righteous cause for Jesus to return and to fight against his enemies. He's not fighting against the whole human race. He's fighting against those that made themselves his enemies, as we'll see in the text. He's not willing that any should perish, He, like his father, want all to come to repentance. But he has enemies that have set themselves against him who don't want anything to do with him and have caused great blasphemy against God and against his kingdom, just like Goliath had done. So he's coming to fight against his enemies, and that's the righteous cause. To understand it from another perspective, this destruction that's going to happen here because Jesus returns, there's a righteous cause for it, There is the concept in military strategy called the just war theory, or the just war concept. Charles Coulson uh, talked about it on his website, and I quote, For a war to be just, it must be waged by legitimate authority. The cause itself must be just, as well as the intention behind going to war. War must be a last resort, waged by means proportional to the threat. We must not target non-combatants, and we must have a reasonable chance of success. So just to have a better understanding of the second coming of Christ and him fighting against his enemies, let's apply what we believe as far as the just war theory uh, to the second coming of Christ. Is it waged by a legitimate authority? Absolutely. How can you get a greater authority than the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Is the cause itself just? Yes. The enemies that have blasphemed God, the beast, and the false prophet, and all of their armies, they needed to be judged because they had been in opposition and had caused much damage to the kingdom of God. How about the intention behind going to war? Was that a good intention when Jesus returns? Of course it is. He's going to put down God's enemies and he's going to bring in his everlasting kingdom. How about it being a last resort? Is this war a last resort? Absolutely, it's a last resort. Because the patience of God has been so, so enduring. And he has waited so long before this final war takes place. Long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then, of course, non-combatants are not targeted in this war. Only those that have made themselves his enemies, and is there a reasonable chance of success? (laughs) Well, you decide. Absolutely. And I love Guzik's comment here. We have to remember that this dramatic display of judgment comes at the end of a long time of grace, patience, and mercy. So in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His decision to Go to war against his enemies is absolutely right. How was it right? Why was it right? Why was it just? Why was it righteous? Because it was his decision. And the only thing that Jesus is capable of of doing is that which is right and just because he is right and just. In fact, every definition we have of what is right and just and true comes from Jesus' own nature. That's where it comes from. We didn't invent justice. We didn't invent righteousness. We didn't invent what is true. These things come from God himself. And so in righteousness he judges and he makes war. It's important to know these things because we want to make sure that we understand the legitimacy of what he is going to do. His eyes like a flame of fire, Revelation one fourteen has that same concept describing Jesus and his glorified body. He sees everything, his view is piercing, and his view is holy. On his head, many crowns. In his first coming, what was his crown? It was a crown of thorns. In his second coming, many crowns. And now we sing, crown him with many crowns. Crown him the Lord of life, crown him the Lord of peace, crown him the Lord of love, and so on. He has many crowns on his head. And he has a name that no one knew except himself. Now wouldn't you know it, commentators trying to figure out what that name is. (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) No, he's the only one that knows it, so I'm not going to try to guess. But there is an interesting statement in Revelation 3.12 to the Church of Philadelphia, where Jesus said that those who overcome, he will write on that overcomer his new name. Is it this same name? I don't know, but it's an interesting cross-reference, Revelation 3.12. He has this name known only by himself. Clothed with a robe dipped in blood, verse 13, which could represent either the blood of the cross or the blood of battle. There is mixed opinion on that particular point. And his name is called the Word of God. We recognize that immediately from the Gospel of John. Do you remember that? very first verse in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So how do we know who the Word is that eternally existed and has always existed? How do we know who the Word is? Verse 14 of John's Gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. So it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is called the word of God. The logos, the Greek word logos. The very expression of God's own nature. That's the meaning behind the word. The truth of the Old Testament and New Testament declaration of God's nature. All wrapped up and embodied in the person of Christ himself. That's who he is. And that's his name. And the armies in heaven... Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, who are these? These are God's people. If you look back at verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, we can see that the wife of the Lamb has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, white and clean. It's the church. So the church and those that are part of this marriage supper of the Lamb, earlier in the chapter, they are the armies in heaven. This is also stated in Revelation chapter 17, uh, verse 14, where it tells us that those who are with the Lord Jesus Christ are called, chosen, and faithful. So he has those who are with him, they are the called ones. Ephesians 1.4, chosen, Uh, Ephesians one four faithful and just following him. Jude 1, verses 14 and 15, Enoch uh, prophesied about these men. Jude Jude quotes him, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. So these armies in heaven are very clearly God's people that are coming with him and going to be uh, setting up his kingdom with him. But this is an interesting army, because it's an army without weapons. And it's an it's a war in which not one of the army members are going to need to fight. Jesus does all the fighting himself, and he doesn't even use weapons, except for one weapon. And that's the sword that comes out of his mouth. That's the only weapon he needs, is his word. And that's what we'll see in our text. And so, these armies in heaven, they are God's people, and what do they do? Verse 14, they followed him on white horses uh, of their own to the earth. They followed him to the earth. Which means they followed him on the earth, and so they'll follow him to heaven, and then they'll follow him from heaven back to the earth. It's the idea of just wherever he goes is where we go. And those that follow him here get to follow him to there. And those that are there with him get to come back with him and follow him from there to here. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, that should have everybody's attention. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, to follow me, if anyone desires to follow me, to come after me, if anyone desires to come after me, to follow me, Jesus said, Then let him deny himself. First qualification. Say no to yourself. Learn to renounce your own self-life. It's not about you and it's not about me. (coughs) Deny self. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross, whatever that cross is. It's individual and it's personal. It's the cross that the Lord gives each one of us. A cross that has to do with redemption in some way toward others. That was the meaning of Jesus' cross. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who has denied self, who takes up the cross, and who then follows Jesus. Those who do that are part of this group, this army of heaven, which refer uh, to his people that come back with him. Out of his mouth, verse 15, comes a sharp goes a sharp sword, and this is what he uses to strike the nations. And this sharp sword coming out of his mouth is referred to throughout the book of Revelation, but it refers to the word of God. Ephesians 6.17, we're told in the armor of God to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, We're told that the word of God is living and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So the word of God is this sharp sword that proceeds out of Jesus' mouth. So he speaks it and it happens. He speaks judgment and judgment occurs. This is the same voice of authority that was in Genesis chapter 1. If you remember... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Light, be, and light was. Then God said, Light, be, and light was. Most powerful physical property that exists in the universe, the property of light. And it came into existence instantaneously uh, upon the utterance of the word of God. Well, guess who that word was that uttered that? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. He uttered the expression, light be and light was. And that same authority, that same voice, the voice that clears forests, as we read in Psalm 29, and the voice that causes the deer to give birth in Psalm 29, and causes the all the other natural phenomena that take place, the voice of the Lord, that same voice, is going to smite the nations with the word that comes out of his mouth. That's all the weapon that he will need. And then it tells us that he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So it's going to be a strong rule, a rod of iron. It's going to be a, ru- a rule with strict accountability to him. His word will be what is. And his word goes. What he commands, that's the law of the land. It won't be advice. And it won't be open to interpretation by the courts as to whether or not that's what the law really means. It's going to be as it is. It's going to say what it means. It's going to mean what it says. And there's going to be strict accountability to him. Now, the great thing about his rules is that they're great rules. And not only are they great rules, but by keeping them, there is great reward, Psalm 19 tells us. And not only that, but in keeping them, we actually are enhanced and strengthened in our lives. See, the Word of God is wonderful because it frees us up to be fully human. It frees us up to live the way God created us to live, even His commandments, David said, your commandments are my delight. They're my meditation all the day. I love them. The problem isn't with the commands of God. It never has been that the problem has been with the commands of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimonies of the Lord are pure. Making wise the simple. The law is perfect. Paul said it's holy, it's just, it's good. The law is perfect. The problem with the law isn't with the law. It's great. The commands are awesome problem with the law is with what it has to work with you and me (laughs) we're the problem with the law but what happens when the lord gives us a new heart what happens when he writes his law upon our hearts and upon our minds what happens when he changes our nature and causes us to be born again by the spirit what happens when he makes us a new creation and we're no longer the same we are not what we once were Before I came to Christ, I didn't want anything to do with the commandments of God. I was running from them as fast as I could go. And I was shocked, beyond all shock, to realize that after I allowed Jesus to finally come into my life, that he gave me the want to. I want to do this now. It's wonderful. Man, it feels so good to be feeling so good. A clean conscience is is great. I like that much more than the dirty conscience that I'd been wearing for years. And, and, and the law is wonderful. And so Jesus' rule with a rod of iron, a rule of strict accountability, is going to be one that is going to be delightful for those that know him. And of course, when he sets up his kingdom, that's what will happen on the earth. People will know him. The Bible says all will know him from the least of them to the greatest of them and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So people will know him, and they'll delight in this rule of his. Think about that when you pray for our leaders. Because our leaders need to understand that Jesus is going to return, and that they have accountability accountability ultimately to him. In 2 Samuel 23:3, David in a psalm he wrote said, The God of the rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. Any human being who rules over another human being in any way must be just and rule in the fear of the Lord. And they are accountable to God to do that. So when you pray for leaders, when you pray for the Supreme Court members, for example, Pray that they would understand exactly what's going to happen when they die. They're going to be standing before the Lord of all creation and answering for how they used their authority. I would pray that they would be afraid in a healthy sense. That instead of consulting case history, they'd learn to consult God's heart through the word and see what's right. And go back to the greatest single document that has ever been formed in order to produce a country. Go back to the Constitution of the United States. And what it actually says and what it actually means. Rule that way. See, that's what we need to pray for for our leaders. I wonder what would happen if the 60 million confessed or professed evangelical believers in the United States would start aggressively praying that way for our leaders, what would happen? It'd be quite amazing to watch what God would do. Well, this reference to the rule with a rod of iron is a direct reference uh, from Psalm 2, so you can uh, read that passage later if you get a chance. What's going to happen is he'll break the nations with his rod, Psalm 2 tells us, and then Revelation 19.15, he'll take that same rod and rule over the nations with it. And then it tells us that he will tread himself the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So he's going to act as a judge. He didn't come in his first coming to be a judge. In his first coming, he came to bring truth and grace. But In his second coming, he comes as judge. And Jesus had said that in John 5. He said, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. The Father gives to the Son the authority to execute judgment. That's why when he treads out the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, it is right for him to do so because the Father gave him permission to do it. The father released him to this task, according to John five twenty six and twenty-seven. And on this robe, the one that had been dipped in blood, and on his thigh there is this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's the stone that is cut out without human hands that Daniel refers to in the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is the same stone that was cut out without human hands. It struck the image representing the kingdoms of this world on its feet and broke the kingdoms of this world in pieces. And the stone that struck the image, which is the Lord Jesus Christ in his second coming, became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. And that's what Jesus is going to be doing when he comes back. He's a king. The kingship of Jesus Christ. The king of kings and the lord of lords. And as believers, we should treat him that way. He's king. He's lord. Jesus said, why do you call me lord, lord, and don't do the things that I say? It doesn't make sense. It's not consistent. To say... Yeah, but Lord, already you've said too much. There is no yeah, but Lord. There is yes, Lord, or speak, Lord, your servant hears, but there's no yeah, but Lord. And if I throw in a yeah, but in there, then I am not respecting his lordship. These are the commandments, not the suggestions, And he's Lord, not just elder brother and close friend, although he is those as well. But he's Lord, and we need to remember that. Obedience, it's an important thing to actually obey God. Now, do I disobey God? Yes, I do. What do I do when I disobey God? Well, he convicts me of it, he shows me that I've done it, and so then I confess it as sin. Lord, I disobeyed you. I do First 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have to go to the Lord when I disobey the Lord. And if he tells me to do something and I don't do it, or if he tells me not to do something and I do it, I've disobeyed the Lord. And so I go to him in confession. Thankfully, he restores me, he cleanses me from all unrighteousness, renews fellowship, and we get to start all over again. I love the grace of God and the millions of chances that he's given me (laughs) over the years and the chances he'll even give me again today. I love Guzik's comment, This Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, this is a Jesus we can't control. (laughs) Here we see Jesus as someone who demands not only our attention, but also our submission. Amen? So he comes And his judgment is upon his enemies. Verses 17 and 18, the supper of the great God. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So this angel proclaims and talks to the birds. These are real birds. These are birds that feast on carrion, the meat of dead or decaying flesh. And they are called to this supper. It's a supper that results from the judgment upon Christ's enemies. It's a supper of the great God. William Newell, in his commentary on Revelation, points out four different suppers described in the Bible. There's the Supper of Salvation, which Jesus referred to, a man who called a supper for his friends and invited them to come. And it was, a, it was an, an allusion to salvation by grace through fi- faith found in Luke chapter 12. So there's a Supper of Salvation that everyone's invited to by faith in Christ. If you're this morning not converted yet, you can come to this supper if you respond to Christ this morning in the invitation. And then there's the Lord's Supper, Communion, which we celebrate to commemorate Jesus' sacrifice. So that's the Lord's Supper, the Second Supper. And then there's the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which we talked about last week. And then there is the Supper of the Great God, which is a Supper of Judgment. Now, if someone loves Supper number one and has come to that by receiving salvation by grace through faith, then they're going to love the Second Supper, which is the Lord's table. They're going to go to it regularly by faith. And they're going to also be invited to the ultimate marriage supper of the Lamb. But if someone rejects completely the supper of salvation and therefore has no appreciation of the Lord's Supper and therefore is not invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the only thing left is this supper, the supper of the great God. Where the flesh of kings and armies Are eaten by these birds of prey. Verse 19. And I saw the beast. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. To make war against him who sat on the horse. And against his army. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh." Judgment upon the enemies of Christ, who are judged. The beast is judged, that's the Antichrist. The false prophet, Revelation 13, the one who props him up, who does signs and wonders in his presence, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. They are judged. All armies that are fighting against Christ are killed, it tells us in the text that we just read. But here's the incredible and shocking thing that should just stand out from the page to all of us. Verse 19, here they are gathered together. The beast is there. The Antichrist is there. The kings of the earth are there. Where are they? From previous passage, they're in the Valley of Megiddo. They're fighting in the Battle of Armageddon, the War of Armageddon, the final great world war. They're all there. They're gathered in the, in the valley of Megiddo fighting this, this war. And then when Jesus returns from the Earth, from heaven to the earth, they stop their war with each other, they gather and they bind with one another, and then they turn to seek to fight against the Lord Jesus. They're not the sharpest pencil in the drawer. What do they hope to accomplish and how do they hope to win? They can't. But this is the height of their rebellion. This is the climax of their rebellion. No submission here. They're turning against him to fight against him. And what does he do? He doesn't rally the troops. He doesn't call in the nukes. He just speaks a word from his mouth. And immediately the beast is captured. The false prophet is captured. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. They're done. And everyone else is killed with that sword coming out of his mouth. And the birds never will be hungry again. The armies of Jesus, they will suffer no casualties. He doesn't take any prisoners. There are no POWs in this. All are killed. They are judged a righteous judgment. Well, it continues in chapter 20. We'll read the first three verses. The judgment of Satan himself. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. The devil bound for a thousand years. Look at verse 1. He laid hold of the devil. Here's this angel. Now, the angel's not named, verse 1. It's just an angel coming down from heaven the devil the angel's not named so this would not be an archangel like michael or perhaps gabriel a ruling angel that's what an archangel was a ruling angel it's not one of it doesn't even require the greatest of the angels this is an angel nondescript not named he comes down from heaven now i want to show you the relative strength of God himself, through his angels, versus the strength of the devil. This angel, he's holding a great chain in his hand. No doubt it's very heavy. And he's also holding a key. Even though in his hand he's holding a great chain and a key, he still has enough strength and dexterity to lay hold of the devil chain him with this chain, and throw him into the bottomless pit with no effort whatsoever. And the, the message here to me is the devil isn't as strong as we think. He's certainly not as strong as Jesus. Some have said, well, then there are two powers in the universe. There's Jesus Christ and the devil. Kind of giving the picture of this cosmic eternal dualism. The dark side and the other, you know, the whatever, the, the light side of the force, I don't know what you call it. But anyway, you get the idea, the, the dualism thing. It's not dualism. Jesus Christ has no opposite. <laughs> He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's no one worthy to be even brought up in the same breath as Him. And the devil certainly isn't the opposite of Jesus Christ. If you're going to name anybody as an opposite of Jesus Christ, maybe Michael, the archangel. But here in this text, even Michael isn't required to bind the devil with this great chain and open up the bottomless pit, throw him in it, and then lock it up again. He's doing it almost one hand tied behind his back. Now, I'm not meaning to minimize the devil, and I'm certainly not going to, bring a railing accusation against him as some foolish ones do I'm going to respect the authority that he's been granted in this era, in this age and he can do great damage but I'm also not going to give him more credit than, than he should have he's thrown into this bottomless pit and he can't get out he has no power In Isaiah chapter 14, in describing the fall of Lucifer, the light-bearer, the one who became the devil or Satan, he became that because of his rebellion. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to ascend to the level of God and replace God, and so he was cast out of heaven. But in Isaiah 14, it tells us that when he's brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit, I'm quoting now, Those who see him will gaze at him and consider, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? There's going to be an amazement. This guy did all of that? How? That's going to be the question. How? Smoke and mirrors. Deception. He did it through deception, largely. That's his weapon. That's his tactic. Deceive the whole world to follow a mirage. To follow something that wasn't even available to them. I love this, the hymn of Martin Luther, Mighty Fortress is Our God. and speaking about the battle against the devil and forces that are against the believer. One of those lines in that great hymn is, One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fail him. Did we, in our own strength, confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, the Lord Jesus. One little word shall fell him. One little word. That's why putting on the armor of God is such a profound and powerful thing, because the armor of God is Jesus. He's the belt of truth, He's the breastplate of righteousness, He's the shoes of peace, He's the shield of faith, He's the sword of the Spirit, He's the helmet of salvation. We put on the armor of God, we're putting on Christ. Now guess what happens when a believer has Christ in him who is the hope of glory. And his power covering that person. Well the devil comes and throws his best at us. One little word shall fell him. That's all it takes. Because the devil is not contesting against you or me. He's contesting against the Lord Jesus Christ. I've just put the armor of God on. I have Jesus covering me, and in me, and around me, and empowering me. The devil has no chance, and that's why the Bible says if we resist the devil, he will flee from you. Because he's fleeing from the presence of Christ. He's fleeing from Jesus, who is far greater in power than he So in our text, it tells us that he is thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. The bottomless pit is the abuso, the abyss. It's translated the abyss often in the New Testament. The two main references for this particular word, the bottomless pit, just to help us describe what it is. Do you remember that demon-possessed man called Uh, well, he was the the Gadarene demoniac. That's the title we give to him. Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8. This demonized man that was so demon-possessed that no human being was strong enough to actually bind him with chains. And every time he was bound, he would just break the chains. So he had to live out among the tombs. That was the only place that was safe for him to live. And Jesus came onto that shore on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And there met this, this man came out to meet Jesus. What have I to do with you, Jesus, O Son of God? Have you come to torment before the time? I pray, don't send me into the abyss. Don't send me into the abuso. Don't send me there. What's your name, Jesus said. My name is Legion, for we are many depart. And Jesus cast the demons out of this man. You remember the story. But these demons were horrified at the idea of having to go into this abyss. And why were they horrified with the idea of having to go into this abyss? Because it's a place of horrible and cruel punishment. But in Revelation chapter 9, we see it show up again, this abyss. And this is the place of every foul and unclean spirit. This is the place that has a king over it called Apollyon or Abaddon. This is a place where these scorpion-like demons with stings in their tails are released during the tribulation period to sting men. And their sting lasts five months and men try to seek death but they can't find it. It's such a powerful and horrible experience. That's where those kinds of demons live, the real bad ones. And Legion didn't want to go into the abyss. But guess where Satan's going to be thrown and bound for a thousand years? Into the abyss. Bound there. Unable to get out. After the thousand years are over with, he's released for a little while. We'll explain why next week. We'll talk about it in the wrap if you want to. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for this incredible scene where you set up your kingdom and where you begin now to move in such a direct way. Our hearts are broken. Our hearts are grieved as we see the things that we have done with this world that you have made. The evil that is all around us. The sin and the bondage that people are being led into day after day. The corruption. And we see your name being blasphemed, Lord. And we hear it being blasphemed. And we see that who you really are isn't known by so many. And what you're really like is not known, Lord if they could only know how merciful and gracious you are, how slow to anger you are, how just and true you are, and how willing you are to save, human beings would have a completely different opinion of you. And that's what we want, Lord. We want your kingdom to come, and we want your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven because we want to see you glorified the way you deserve to be. We want men and women and boys and girls to know you the way you deserve to be known. And just thank you so much that that's going to happen. You win. Ultimately, you win. You're the victorious one. And we bless and love you for it. And we praise you for it. And we pray that you'd strengthen us to live lives that are worthy of this incredible name by which we've been called. The name of Jesus. Strengthen us, Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. In areas of our lives where we're lukewarm in our attitude towards you, show us, convict us, Lord. May we see that those areas got to be changed. If there are any areas of disobedience where we've been walking in known sin, we've been unwilling to deal with these things, break our hearts, Lord, over these things, bring the fear of God into our lives. Again, show us, Lord, what this does to you, how this breaks your heart. That we might turn from it. Fill us with the sense of your purpose, Lord. Your plan. What you want to do. Your word says that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and has not entered into the heart of man the things that you have prepared for those that love you, but you've revealed them to us by your Spirit. Thank you for that. Help us to find out the purpose for which we've been called as individuals and as a church body. Thank you, Father. We give you glory. We give you praise. And as we're praying and as we're having this moment of quiet before the Lord, if there are any here this morning that have yet to make Jesus their Lord and invite him to come into their lives to be their savior, I've got a short word to share with you. God loves you. He really does. And he's got a plan for you that is far greater than anything you can even imagine. And he knows about the pain that's in your life. He does, and he cares about it. And he knows about your past, and he knows about the things that you've done wrong. And he cares about that too. And he's willing to forgive. Jesus Christ, his son, paid the penalty for all of your sins on the cross. And The Bible says that Jesus himself is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like to hurt. And he hurts for you. And he wants to bring you into a relationship with God so that he can begin to really know you. And you can really begin to know him personally. We're not talking about religion here at all. It has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with relationship with God. That's what he wants for you and for me. And if you've never done that, you've never bowed the knee to Jesus... You've never accepted him into your life. But I encourage you to do that this morning. Be reconciled to God. Receive the forgiveness that God wants to give you. Let him give you a new heart. Let him give you a new life. Let him give you a new start, a brand new start. Doesn't matter how many years you've been alive, he can make a new beginning today if you'll let him. So is there anyone here this morning that wants to make that decision and receive the Lord Jesus Christ into their life as Savior and Lord? Would you just stand right where you're, right where you're seated? seated just, just stand right where you are in your place. And we want to pray for you and pray with you, actually. Lead you into a prayer to receive Jesus Christ into your, into your life. The Bible says as many as received him, To them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. You can receive Christ this morning and be given the power to become a child of God. Anyone this morning? Just stand right where you are. We'll have a word of prayer with you. Anybody listening to this afterwards by CD or in streaming on the internet or even perhaps watching it right now live on the internet? You can make the same decision. You can just pray this prayer right now. You can say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I admit it. And I admit that I need salvation. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And that you're coming again. And I invite you to come into my life, Lord Jesus. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I pray that you'd give me a new start. I pray you'd make me a new person. Strengthen me, Lord. Come and live within me. I receive you now by faith. Amen. And if you make that decision, then it's going to be very important that you align yourself with a local body of believers and really start f- learning what it means to be connected with a family of believers that love God. It's going to be really important that you read the Bible. There's probably no single thing more important than that than to read through the scriptures. So if you don't have a Bible, contact us. The number's on the screen and on the CD or here. Just contact us. We'd be happy to give you a Bible. Read the Bible. Learn how to pray, communicate with God, and learn how to share your faith with others. You do those things and watch God work in your life, and over time you just start to mature Become a stronger believer. Become more effective in your witness. The Lord will change those areas in your life that need to be changed. He'll do the work. It's powerful. He's a powerful Savior. He's a mighty Savior. Amen? Let's stand together, shall we?